So today we wanted to recap the third phase of this project, and for this hiatus episode, I don't really have a hard and fast rule for how this should go, other than I just kind of want to very briefly run through the timeline that we covered, and again, I kind of always talk about how it's interesting how we get more and more focused and cover less and less time, so for the third quarter, we started with right around 1900, turn of the century, with uh, Jack the Ripper and then into Battleship Potemkin. And and then we, you know, go all the way through with the right stuff in the late 50s, early 60s with the Space Age and the Cold War. So time after time, of course, was uh, very important historical events as it covered the time <laughs> traveling of H.G. Wells and meeting his wife in 1970s San Francisco, which is a little yes. known historical fact. Right. That, that movie was so fun. Like I and I, I can't believe I had never heard of it before. And I do definitely recommend it for anybody who hasn't still checked it out. Like I just, I don't know. It's such a ridiculous mess and fun time <laughs> watching that movie. I, I that episode of the podcast is fun too, <laughs> especially because the two of us trying to talk through the mechanics of how the time travel works in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and like how the yeah. machine works and you know he has like the one piece that makes him stay and the other piece that makes the machine stay and he, you know like take this piece out don't take this piece out make sure you always have this one right there's a lot of plot conveniences that they kind of worked in but they did and i think i talked about at the time too they set everything up in such a way that like you know what you did it <laughs> good job and of course yeah just a reminder that they never did figure out who jack the ripper was and a, a time of recording. A time of recording. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. You know, maybe he time traveled forward from the seventies, and he's still yet to appear back up on our timeline here. And we'll uh, that's we'll, right. We'll get it all figured out. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I honestly, I don't think that that's ever um, probably going to get solved. Just because by the time technology was good enough to where it could have solved any of those crimes, the samples the are gone. Deteriorated yeah. too much. So. True. Yeah, yep. we are kind of past the point. You never know, though, as far as like, you know, some breakthroughs and, you know, we're not necessarily privy to the exact actual logistics or do they find some lost letter of a confession that they actually believe is credible? And I think there are, there are various things. The one that comes to mind, this is completely different, but it does make me think along the same lines, is the whole idea that obviously the lost city of Atlantis is just a legend and there's no historical evidence. And it was just kind of something what did Plato mentioned, you know, in passing and they think it might've yeah, been a metaphor like and there, yeah. there's no archeological or historical evidence for its existence, but they thought the same thing about the city of Troy until they found it about a hundred years ago or 150 years ago. So you never know, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Troy, Troy right. was equal to Atlantis until they found it. So, Maybe, you know what, in, in 50 years they find Atlantis and we're like, oh, yeah, here's why we thought this, here's what it was, and <laughs> this is not in our timeline at all. But there was there was actually like some rumors or some conspiracy theories that it was like this place in Africa. Have you seen those videos? That huh. they, they, they kind of think Atlantis might have been this region that dried up in Africa and is now part of the desert. But, you know, a thousand years uh -huh. ago, or, or sorry, probably like three, four, five thousand years ago, it could have actually sustained. And there's like, you know, some evidence of possible structures. And again... It's all speculation, obviously, but it is still interesting and not at all at what we're supposed to be talking about on, on this timeline. But we are pretty far from Jack the Ripper. As, <laughs> as we have established, what we do here better than anyone is go off on tangents. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, the other thing about this movie is that it is almost as historically accurate as the, is it Johnny Depp in From Hell? Yeah, that movie's, it's trash. It's, it's, uh, it's based on one of the, which I, I don't remember how much of this we covered in the original episode, but it's based on one of the popular um, conspiracy theories that Jack the Ripper was in some way tied to the royal family. But like a lot of those conspiracy theories have been debunked um, in, in one way or the other. But um, I mean, there there are a ton of theories on who Jack the Ripper is um, or was, you know, including, you know, members of the royal family, um, people with connections to the royal family. There's a, uh, a few, couple of uh, Jane the Ripper. They call them Jane the Ripper theories where they oh, think right. that it might have been a female serial killer. But yeah, like I said earlier, I don't think uh, I don't think we're ever gonna know one way or the other. I was listening to another historical podcast called Rex Factor, and I'm kind of just—they've been around for like ten years. I've just now been catching up on their backlog, but they do an episode on each British monarch. And the Jack the Ripper thing came up when they were around this time period, and they—they they did mention the completely debunked and disregarded theory that it could have been a member of the royal family and they even had the reasons it was a theory and of course i forget exactly who was involved but basically there was a reason whether it was from a venereal disease or some kind of rumors of of you know infidelity that somehow led to maybe they wanted to silence a prostitute and all the prostitutes she might have talked to so that was the just possible justification they were trying to say with that's that's the that's yeah. the exact plot of from hell okay i guess you know, yeah I, I haven't seen from hell since i saw it in the theater so i'd completely forgotten about i thought all that so they basically took this theory and then said what if it's true here's the story as a movie which oh, okay. again that's uh, i guess yeah. you know kind of a fun's not the right word but an idea <laughs> <laughs> okay what do you remember most about battleship potemkin uh oh i actually I, so i really like battleship potemkin. i know right <laughs> I really, really liked it. Um, and the more I think back about it, I'm like, that was a really good movie and a really good story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the Odessa steps scene. Yes, which that's what I remember as well. Yeah. So I th- this was the first time I'd actually ever seen the movie, but I'd seen that I had seen that scene before, or at least parts of that scene. But seeing it as part of the movie, I think made it even better and kind of added the to context, my yeah. appreciation of the scene. And then, like, since then, I've I've seen, like, multiple videos and stuff of people explaining, like, why it's so cool and why it's so important and all of the uh, pioneering, like, effects and right. camera work and stuff. And then, you know, all of the uh, the homages to it that I think we talked about a little bit in the episode. But, yeah, that was that was such a cool movie. Yeah. And just just the tension we talked about and how it's it's basically just three scenes and you got the the mutiny and just the, the again just the real life tension involved and the communist propaganda element to it being released 20 years later I, you know it's kind of commemorating the bolshevik revolution and how this revolution you know a decade or so before was kind of a prelude in lots of ways and lenin talked glowingly about what the guys on the battleship potemkin did as again kind of a prelude to the ultimate communist takeover of Russia. So it's, it's just a lot of layers and it's, it's a movie that is very significant from both a filmmaking standpoint and from a historical standpoint and the events it covers. So it's like the perfect movie for this whole project is Battleship of yeah. Duncan. It just kind of highlights everything we're trying to hit. It's short and it is uh, on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube for that's, free. That's right. That's right. And so, uh, I mean, this is, this is like probably one of the most accessible and, it's really like 
I think a, a lot of times people, you know, they see, oh, this movie, you know, came out in what was 1925. Right around there. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the whole silent film thing, may, you know, might scare people away, but it really, it really is engaging. It's paced actually pretty well. And it's not even long. It's, you know, you don't, it's not like, uh, it's not like Lawrence of Arabia, which I, <laughs> I have no problem sitting down for the entirety of Lawrence of Arabia. I love that movie and we'll get to it, but you know, it's, it's three and a half hours long. Like that's an entire afternoon. Like right. that's it's a commitment. Day. Yeah. Yeah, this this isn't. You can watch the whole thing um, on YouTube, and it, you know, I I think it's it's well under two hours. I think it's even under an hour and a half. Oh yeah, I was thinking it was like no, I was thinking it was like seventy minutes. Oh really? Okay, I, I don't I didn't remember exactly how long okay. it was. I just remember. But yes, it, was like, it is a short short movie. I mean, not technically classified as a short film, but yes, it is. It is very short. Yeah. Um, and then said right about the same time was the much longer Fiddler on the Roof, and again the first thing that comes to mind is just Tevia and his boisterous personality and just how mm-hmm. endearing of a character he is. Again, it's a fictional story, but it's set against the very real world of the, oh, what's she, what did they call that area? The pain of settlement or the pale of settlement, I think was that area in Western Russia where the kind of Jews were forced into <laughs> Oh, I didn't think about that before. It's like they're kind of forced to concentrate in this area. But, I mean, they weren't, and they were persecuted while they were there, where they would have these uh, pogroms, and basically the Russian officials would come in and kind of rough them up a little bit just to, I don't even know why. What was the motivation behind those pogroms? And just to kind of, like, remind them who's boss? Like, what was the point of those? So it seemed to kind of, and they don't really explain it in the movie, um, but I think it's just kind of like the which, I mean, this is kind of a shitty thing to say, but, like, it's just that same anti-Semitism that's been around for, like, a few thousand years. It seemed in the movie they were just kind of being, I don't know, persecuted for the sake of being... I know, right? Persecuted, I guess, just to, just to keep them under the thumb of the, of the authorities, basically. But it, but it was all official. It just seems like, okay, here's your work responsibilities for the day. Okay, so you gotta, you gotta change your tires, you need to go to the bank, and you gotta go rough up some Jews, like... That's right. what you got to get done at work today, right? Like, well, and the and the guy, the the constable or the the head, you know, authority figure guy, the one who comes in um, with his goons and actually does the pogrom at the at the wedding, he's like almost annoyed that they're taking it so personally. He's like, "Look, guys, right. like I'm just doing my job. Like, I you know I got to come in here and 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 mess your stuff up and break everything and beat <laughs> you guys up, like." You know, it's just right. something I got to do. I got to so hit, like, I gotta hit my quota. I mean, that, I, right, I've exactly. only roughed up four yeah. Jews this month. Like, exactly. Yeah. And and it's it's all, it's like it's almost beyond him that they would like take offense to that. It's like, you know, geez, guys, like it's just it's just my job. Yeah. Ridiculous. And yeah. But a, a, gr- a great movie. And yes. uh, one of those iconic, iconic musicals. The music is awesome. Okay, and then we move on to South America in Embrace of the Serpent, which was again kind of kind of slow but very interesting and I liked how they took I think this was actually a really impressive screenplay how they kind of took these real life figures who went down to South America and kind of wove a narrative, a parallel narrative, it, you know, what about 10, 15, 20 years apart. And with them dealing with this particular, oh my gosh, Karamakate, boom. Uh, there you go. <laughs> again, we're not doing Good this with notes. Remembered. We're not doing this with notes. Um, this particular native, and then also the search for 
uh, plant. I don't remember the plant's name, but it, you know, and they, they kind of deal with the the getting of the rubber, and it was it was just a very interesting, well crafted story. I thought. Yes. Yeah. Good story. Good screenplay. Uh, pretty slow, but a, a good movie to watch. I don't think I'll probably. No. Right. It. And pretty depressing too. Yeah. I'm, I'm good, but it was it was. I'm glad I did. I'm, I am glad that I watched it. Right. And then just to kind of keep us, because we don't have notes here again, so to kind of keep us in our time on here, then we did a bonus episode of Titanic, which is what, 1912, right? So that's kind of mm-hmm. a date I have more in mind than some of these others. Yeah, I think Race and Serpent was maybe 1909, and then the 40s was the other other timeline that they bounced, yeah. bounced to. So Titanic, again, I, this is the way you do historical fiction. You take an actual event, but then you put imaginary characters in that world, and it gives you a lot of flexibility, but you can still be you know, fairly faithful to the actual events and the actual victims. Although, of course, right. you pointed out there was the one guy that they basically completely railroaded, and he was, you know, actually one of the good guys yeah. that they basically turned into a bad guy just because, and not realizing they're like, oh, maybe his family won't be happy with this. Right. Even though he, he, he was actually like the complete opposite, saved a ton of people and was a hero. And yeah, in the movie, they make him like a murderer, like the worst guy in the whole in the whole movie. Uh, but yes, a horrible loss of life, horrible, horrible tragedy. And also, though, too, by today's standards, the boat wasn't that big, right? Like, it was huge at the time, but like today's right. cruise liners would dwarf the Titanic, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know the exact uh, dimensions or anything, but I have seen, you know, like diagrams and infographics. That's what I'm thinking. Show, yeah. Like the Titanic next to, you know, a modern day, like a carnival cruise ship. Right, right. Um, I remember seeing a similar thing, again, a little bit outside of the timeline from this quarter of the project, but I don't think we ever talked about it originally, was back, uh, oh, I forget the dude's name, but there was this, almost like pre-Magellan and all those guys, there was like a Chinese sailor, and I don't know if he did as much exploring, but like the, the ships that they had, they showed the same kind of infographic, where it was like the size of these giant Chinese vessels compared mm-hmm. to like what Magellan and them would have sailed around the world. And it was it was that same kind of split. It's like oh, they're like forty times oh, wow. the size of uh, what they were sailing around the world in. Just kind of crazy that China had that technology then. Okay, so then we roll into Pather Pinchali, which I still want to get to the other movies in that trilogy, the Apu trilogy. Just kind of yeah. like classic filmmaking there as well. Yeah, that was really good. Um, that was another one, just like. Uh... Battleship Potemkin, where I was kind of like surprised how much I actually liked it, you know, given the the fact that it's, you know, complete, it's an, a, an entirely different language, right. um, the whole thing black and white, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an Indian movie, and it's not really, it's not really about anything oh right uh, it's just like a slice I mean, of it, life it, film it's, it's it's about the family but it's not you know there's not, not a through like, plot yeah right and they're not like on a quest to you know like find this you know special plant or save the world or you know what it's just like them just kind of living life in, right. in eastern right. india but yeah it, it is it was really really good and with a lot of non-professional actors and semi-autobiographical by the guy who wrote wrote the book and just just kind of an an important glimpse into a small part of the world at that point in time so i think it was set in the 19 teens because yeah we kind of have it after titanic here and pre-world war one which we get into first with gallipoli which allowed us to look at kind of australia new zealand and then how they were involved with the disastrous Gallipoli campaign in kind of the Middle Eastern area. It was, it was, was it part of Turkey, technically Gallipoli? I'm trying to remember actually where Gallipoli 
Um, so they were they were fighting the well, was the the at the time was the Ottoman Empire, but right. they were Turks ethnically. Right. Um, I oh, man, I think I think <laughs> well, I'm, it I'm is. picturing where it was. It was it might have been just south in like Jordan or something, but it was like basically that area though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and again, I've listened to other podcasts since talk about you know the Ch- Churchill's role and kind of that failed uh, thing too. Because I think was that maybe even they don't mention it in the film, and I don't think we just we talked about it. Was that actually Churchill's idea? The whole failed campaign into Gallipoli. And I I don't remember. I don't know. It's a costly defeat for the Allies and for the sponsors, especially First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill. So yeah, I don't think we mentioned that at all. That it was kind of a, no, a big was, hit for his reputation. Was he there? He was definitely one of the directors of it. I don't know if he was physically in the area at the time. Okay. And I guess I've always I always kind of knew peripherally that Churchill had a disgrace early on. I just hadn't made the connection that that disgrace was the Gallipoli campaign and tied oh, into okay. this movie. Yeah, and it, that yeah, makes sense. Though. Yeah, political effects. Yeah, Churchill was demoted and then resigned and left for the Western Front. What the heck? That's crazy. And then obviously he comes back later. But yeah, so that was a a big hit for Churchill, actually. So add that to the episode we did, because I don't think we mentioned him at all. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, we continue. We kind of intentionally at first, I kind of do like approaching from the non-standard. We kind of backdoor our way into these conflicts, because next we went to Lawrence of Arabia, also set during World War II. Sorry, that's World War Two, World War One, World War One. Yeah, yeah. Focusing not even about World War One itself, but about the parallel conflict of again, we talked about the Ottoman Empire, and this is kind of the beginning of its dissolution, and then the Arabs, you know, yeah. ethnically different from the Turks, but still under the realm of the Ottoman Empire, are wanting to make sure that they come out of this with their own they want their autonomy. Own, their, yeah, yeah, yep. And how Lawrence, T.H. Lawrence, or T.E. Lawrence, right? Oh, my gosh. which yeah. What's his middle name? <laughs> I don't know what his middle name is, but it is T.E. Lawrence, yeah. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> uh, anyway, he, he his, his role in this, and yes, we did kind of talk about how the movie definitely exaggerated some things, but that he is one of your nominees for Most Interesting Humans Ever. <laughs> yes. And I think, I think this movie, I think Lawrence of Arabia, of all the movies that we did... For season three, I think it's my favorite one. Oh, okay. I'll uh, I don't, I definitely don't say the same about that film, but I will, I'll keep an eye out. I'll, I'll when I make the same judgment, I'll uh, I'll let you know as it comes up because I haven't thought about that ahead of time. But I know you're a big fan of Lawrence Arabia. I definitely like it. I've seen it three times. I'll watch it again, yep. but not necessarily one of my favorites. Yep. I I think it's I I would go so far as to say it if it's not perfect, which I I think it's perfect, but I'm a huge fan of it. If it's if it's not perfect, I think it's as close to perfect as you can get. It, it is I very impressive. Performances yeah. are so good. The writing is so good. Uh, the sets and the action and all of the practical effects, which are awesome. They're not cheesy like a bunch of other movies are that were made around that time. True. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you actually feel like you're there. I'm going to go ahead and say it's not even my favorite World War One movie on our list here. But oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving right along to definitely a more typical and almost kind of like the quintessential World War One story is All Quiet on the Western Front. Yep. And based on the classic novel, told from the German perspective, which I thought was nice to do. And the biggest thing, of course, and that's going to tie into Paths of Glory here as well, is the anti-war side of it. And I talked about it before that World War Two 
that you it's easy to find justifications for the violent conflict because you're trying to stop the Nazi regime. Right. Versus World War One, I am still convinced was completely pointless and should never have happened. And yep. all choir on the Western Front, uh, especially highlights that and you always think of the germans they often get painted as the aggressors and arguably well definitely rightfully so in world war ii and arguably it was justifiably so in in world war one although they weren't necessarily that much worse than anybody else but right. we see the soldiers on the front these kids right out of high school maybe even like would-be seniors in high school who are just doing it for this sense of nationalistic pride not because there's any like righteous cause it, the, the cause is the fatherland the motherland this yeah. is, it is the same with the australians in gallipoli why are we going to to the middle east i don't know because we're helping our buddies we're representing we're representing our country they turn it into right. a freaking team sport for yep. no reason and then and millions it's, died it's so it's yeah it's so political um and they even there's even that scene in the movie um in all quiet on the rest, western front where they're sitting under that tree and they're talking about, I mean, I, I don't even remember the specifics of the conversation, but they're talking about like, you know, well, one one country's fighting another country and they're, you know, um, and they're just talking about, well, the, you know, the countries aren't fighting like we're fighting. Right. You know, the, why can't the leaders come out here and settle this themselves? Yeah, exactly. Do the whole, yeah. Trial by not trial by combat, but yes, the one on one combat to determine the war. Right. And um, and actually, so a movie that had not yet come out. Uh, at the time we did these episodes, did you get a chance to see 1917? Yes, it is awesome. It was very, very good. And if it's, it, so let's go ahead and use this opportunity to to kind of work it in. So it is told from the British point of view, and yep. I actually didn't catch what <laughs> I was going to say. I didn't catch what year it was set in. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay, but it's. it's <laughs> It's not, hey, the War of 1812 didn't end in 1812, so maybe the right. movie 1917 is set in 1916. Um, right. But it, but it's not about a specific um, event. It is more kind of like All Quiet on the Western Front and Paths of Glory, yeah. where it's just kind of generally set within the war, specifically, right. I believe, in 1917. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I, it's it's not a, uh, it's not like a, a true story, like the, um, they're not based on historical people, although... Right. Uh, I do believe uh, the director. Uh, oh, Sam Mendes. It was his grandpa yeah. was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam, Sam Mendes. He, he, yeah. He, he, I think he did base some of the um, story off of his his grandfather's experiences, but it's not like you know, it's it's not like Lawrence of Arabia, where like these guys are these actual characters. Right. I don't know if there's a historical figure in the movie. I don't think there is. I think it's just a it's just kind of a, a more broad yes. kind of telling a story of these two soldiers in this um, conflict, but nothing nothing super specific, historically speaking. And the continuous tracking shot was not as gimmicky as I thought it might have been going in. Like, it, it felt very natural to the narrative they were telling. Yes, and I am a sucker for that kind of stuff. Oh, I really? love looking... I love looking like I love long shot or, you know, long takes. Yeah. Um, and then I, and I had, I had heard obviously before I went and saw this, that it was, you know, that they uh, shot pretty much the entire movie. It made it look like it was one take. So then I was like trying to find, oh. <laughs> you know, where they were, where they were cheating and where they were making the cuts and, and a few of them you can, but like there are legitimately like set, like, you know, you'll go 10 minutes and it's like, I don't know where they could have put this cut. And, uh, 
you know, going back and researching it later, they just didn't. Oh, they did, like, really? They, they had takes that were that long. Oh, okay. I assumed I just wasn't seeing them too. But yeah, I guess to your point, they probably did just have. And I guess you don't think, man, that's like, do they do one take or do they do like these massive resets? And yep, we're going to fill the 10, 20 minute scene again, which. So, yeah, talking to, or the, uh, talk, I say that like I was the one who talked to him. Uh, (laughs) In interviews with some of the actors, they were talking about how um, they rehearsed super extensively before they ever started filming. Um, So basically, it was kind of, you know, they, they went through the motions over and over and over again. Um, basically, so everyone knew where to be, where they had to be. But you know, that there were there were there are shots in that movie that are eight, ten, twelve minutes long. Wow! And you know, if one thing, like one guy, you know, does the wrong thing or says the wrong thing or or is or is out of place, they've got to stop and start it all over. Um, so they were they were talking about you know how it's it's kind of like stressful doing that. Um, but then it also led to some cool stuff so that. The scene where he's running. I was going to uh, say the same the thing. It was a, it was ad libbed basically, or it wasn't planned. Yeah, yeah. As, as everyone's running out of the trench and uh, all the explosions are going off, and he like, like full sprint rams into that guy. Yep, and tumbles, you know, just like somersaults over himself a couple times, and then gets up and keeps running. That was not scripted at all. Yeah, that's beautiful. But, I love those happy accidents like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Oh, absolutely. And he uh, apparently he said, yeah, you know, I hit that guy and I fell over and I didn't hear cut. So I just got up and just kept acting and just kept running. And, you know, they didn't say cut. So I just kept going. And that was the cut that they put in the in the movie is completely by accident. And I think that happens. You, you, hear, you hear stories like that. Again, Lord of the Rings isn't necessarily part of the purview of this podcast. But two examples from Lord of the Rings that come to mind are one when. Gandalf is in the Hobbit hole and he turns and hits his head on the rafter. That wasn't scripted either. Ian McKellen that was not scripted. Act- no, Ian McKellen actually hit his head and stayed in character to say "oof." <laughs> nice. And then the other one is when Aragorn kicks the helmet when they're they think that the hobbits were killed by the orcs because they went they found yeah. like the the, the aftermath and that's probably the, what the second movie yep aragorn kicks that helmet and then screams and falls to and his knees screams. he broke his yeah. toe oh okay he kicked that helmet broke his he broke his toe and it hurt so bad he just turned it into grief and oh shouted God. even more and then dropped to his knees like, yeah because he just I broke actually, his toe I, I know another one from lord of the rings oh really which we're, we're, I mean, we're already off the rails here, so I'll just tell you this one. You, you can cut it out or whatever. But in the uh, at the end of the first movie, we're fighting all the Urukai in the in the forest, and he throws the dagger or stabs the the one. Oh, first he actually hit the he actually hit the thing with the sword. And he, he pulls it out and throws it at him. He was not supposed to throw it at him, but it, oh. it like slipped out of his hand. Or he was like supposed to like throw it like off to the side or something. Okay. Or you know, try and purposely miss him, but he accidentally threw it directly at Viggo Mortensen's head, and Viggo Mortensen bats it out of the way with his sword. And that was not scripted at all; that was a complete accident. But it's like one of the coolest things. No, right? Like, Man, how they do that? Like that's such a that's a, such a sick how, shot. Yeah, how they do it? Bum luck. It's an accident. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had I'd only heard the first or the one side of that. I thought it was a fake knife he was supposed to throw, but I did hear that yes, Vigo just swung and hit it out of the air on the first and only take or whatever. But I didn't realize he wasn't supposed to release it. And they were probably just going to CG it. Yeah, so it almost looks CG because yeah. it's so perfect. It's like, nope, right. they actually got it on screen. Yep. So Vigo Mortensen, uh, actual superhero. <laughs> I, I had heard that. Oh, my gosh. You see the videos of him speaking like a million different languages? Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> 
And a couple of those are definitely like, okay, he just studied and prepared and like memorized yeah. these phrases. But then a couple are like, oh no, the dude's fluent in like at least three of those four, or like at least three or four of those seven languages they show him speaking. Yeah. Where were we? <laughs> uh, 1917. Okay. <laughs> hey, right, right where we're at on our timeline. And then, and then, yeah, Paz of Glory said at the same time from the French perspective. So it's kind of neat with those three movies. You want three great trench warfare movies. You got All Quiet on the Western Front from the German point of view. 1917 from the British point of view and Paths of Glory from the French point of view. So that's a great, great trench warfare uh, trilogy there. And yeah, Paths of Glory is my favorite World War One movie on our list here. Okay. And And see, this is, this is, I I think this is, um, it's telling. I think it's indicative of a difference, maybe a difference in um, what we prefer to see in movies. I agree with that. Because, because Paths of Glory is almost, too small. Almost, for lack of a better word, it's almost the antithesis of Lawrence of Arabia. It's very small. It's very personal. It's it's a lot of dialogue. There's not a ton of action. There's not big crazy sets. You know, they're like they're in the courtroom. They're in the dungeon. Like that's pretty much it. But it's you know it's relationship driven. It's uh, very uh, you know dramatic and there's the speeches and everything and the and the emotional stuff. And then, you know, yeah, so then that, that makes sense that that would be your favorite. And then mine is the Lawrence of Arabia with all the giant battles and the huge sets and real airplanes. And- <clears throat> yeah, it's Reservoir Dogs versus Inglorious Bastards. And my my liking of one versus the other has nothing to do with production value. It's all to do with characters and story and performances. And right. I just happen to like Inglorious Bastards better, say... But the production value is not even the remotest consideration when I when I look at that. So yeah, that is kind of right. interesting. Not that I don't enjoy those things, because again, I I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and part of that is yeah. the production value. So right. yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm inconsistent, I guess too. But um, <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. And then and then another we go back to another David Lean epic right on the heels of World War One with Doctor Shivago again, right like Titanic, where they take the actual events. And then insert fictional characters. And what's interesting about this one is, I want to say almost to a fault because there's nothing wrong with it, but the history is irrelevant. This is just a love story is what this is. It's a love story that happens to take place during the Russian Revolution, Bolshevik Revolution. Almost even, And I guess you could say the same thing about Titanic, but I feel like this is even more so. Because Titanic at least shows... You still get the whole thing of the ship going down, of the events, of the arrogance, of the of some of the other right. people who are on the ship versus Doctor Chicago. You get I don't know if you actually is there a historical figure in the thing. They mention Lenin, and that's about I, it. Yeah, I, I don't think so. And and I mean, like Titanic is called Titanic because like even though the story is Jack and Rose, it's not called like Jack and Rose, and they happen to be on the Titanic. Oh right, 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 right. It's about the Titanic sinking, whereas Doctor Chicago just happens to be set in Russia during the Bolshevik Re- Revolution. Right, right. And and again, is is still a good enough depiction of the Russian Revolution events that you can kind of recommend Dr. Shvago from both fronts. If you want a good, yes. epic, kind of tragic romance, check out Dr. Shvago. If you want a good look at the world of Russia during the time of the revolution, watch Dr. Shvago. So right. I think it's easy to recommend and one that's maybe not as well known as Lawrence of Arabia, but man, it is really really good as well and again both directed by david lean just a couple years apart so hats off to him and then uh omar sharif is dr shafago and is also a a major supporting character in lawrence of arabia right 
Yep. Moving on to Viva Zapata with Marlon Brando as a Mexican for reasons. And <laughs> uh, but this this was a good one though too, where not as good a movie, but a good historical glimpse into the Mexican Revolution. And I, I want to say this movie took place from like 1909 to 1919. So again, right, you know, ends, yeah, it actually starts before, but then ends right after what we would have saw in Doctor Zhivago, right. And the and the thing that about this movie is it was like like real life was almost too crazy and dramatic, you know. Yes, they kind of to simplify it. One movie, yeah. so they had to, yeah they trimmed a bunch and they cut out a bunch. Like I think there was like a whole president between two of the guys that they ended up yes, cutting they out. They combined and, some characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They leave out the U.S.'s role completely. Oh yeah, which is like that could I mean, that, that could almost be its entire episode talking about like mexican american relations around this time you know with with world war one and everything and and the fact that we didn't go to war with mexico at this time may only be because we were too busy with world war one and that the germans wrecked and the germans yeah. were actually trying to parlay that into basically almost trying to goad the u.s into going to war with mexico so they wouldn't come help the british and how that right. and the movie doesn't talk about that at all but that was actually an issue at the time it's just, it's just crazy how Quickly, we forget all these things. And yeah. now, in a historical note worth mentioning that works into this timeline that doesn't actually come up in any of our movies here, but as we were recording this uh, on April 9th of 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is the point, you know, 1919, 1918, that's, that's the exact point of the Spanish flu pandemic that killed I, I the, the numbers you hear vary but it was like what 10 to 50 million people around the world were killed by the spanish flu which we should also note here did not originate in spain right uh so it, if you if you google spanish flu deaths um it looks like the uh the overall mid to high estimate is 50 million okay okay but i mean this is this is one of the things that's like this is so it's not cool. Uh, it's not a cool <laughs> thing about history. It's an interesting thing about history is like the way that things happen sometimes on top of each other. Like it's sometimes hard to kind of remember that history is just real life things that have already happened. It's not a story. Like there's no reason that World War One and the Spanish flu should have happened at the same time. But like those two things happened at the same time. And like what an insane time to have lived through, you know, or, you know, to be around in like all these millions of people dying during World War One. And also, you know, you have like uh, everything went on with like the uh, Russian Civil War and you also have the Spanish flu. Like it's it was, it was nuts. No, and that's that's a great point you actually make, because I think it's very easy for us to try to Storyify everything and make it into this nice, tidy narrative. But that right. actually reminds me of, say, Richard Linklater's Boyhood, where he kind of took some hits for not having a through plot. And he was like, our lives don't have plots. Well, neither really does history. We can find the stories and storytellers will use history. And again, I do this myself, both in my podcast and a lot of my writing is, yeah, you're going to find the stories and tell the stories. But it didn't happen as a story, to your point. It just right. happened. And then, yep. I guess, you, a telling of a happening becomes a story. But as far as any kind of 
three act structure or plot twist. It's like right. There's it's like there's you know the puppet master you know holding the strings like oh yeah Spanish flu. It's like oh that's such a dance that's machina. Like why would right. you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I suppose it yeah, literally was. And actually, no, I, and I've seen that up at the school and stuff. Also, a lot of the teachers are talking about, like, they're constantly telling the students, like, we talk about history. You're not living through history. And we're trying to illustrate the, to that. To your point, we kind of always are. But to the teacher's points, yeah, but this is one maybe unlike anything that has yet happened in these high school students' lifetimes. How many things will be talked about 100 years from now? And that they right. are, we are actually now living through a once in a century, hopefully not more than that, uh, event. And yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And it's, and what do I constantly talk about too, is how everything is connected. And it's just kind of neat that now this, now people who never knew about the 1918 pandemic, or if they did know about it, were loosely aware and didn't actually even know the year. They just kind of maybe had heard of the Spanish flu, but couldn't have said if it was 1817 or 19 or 40 or whatever i think they're all kind of now aware oh yeah it's right about 100 years ago right about 100 years ago and i'm seeing the old newspaper clips talking about school closings in 1919 on the you know tail end of the the spanish flu pandemic to try to keep the spreading to a minimum so it's, it's yeah it's all connected well and you know and and to to be topical you know you hear a lot in the news about like you know contraction rates and uh hospitalization rates and death rates for covid19 by age and one of the things that is, you know, thankfully very dissimilar from the uh, 1918 flu to uh, COVID-19 is that the flu in 1918, you know, it so COVID-19 is pretty much, you know, it's it's mostly old people. Right. I mean, obviously right. you have your cases of, of younger people that get it and die, but mostly it's it's, you know, 65 and older. In 1918, the flu, it was, you know, old people and young babies, which you see with normal flu, but also like a 20 to 40 year, like 20 to 40 year olds. Yep. They call it a W curve. Instead of a U curve, it was a W curve. Right. Which is crazy. And I heard the reasoning behind that from, you know, one of the communicable disease experts that was on a podcast was talking about. So the Spanish flu had one, like you said, it could kill like the normal flu, but it had this added weird thing where... It was able to, because part of what being sick does, it's your own. It's actually your own immune system fighting against you. And the Spanish yeah. flu did that to such a degree that those with the strongest immune systems were fought the hardest by their own bodies. So that's right. why it was that that peak of people who should have been the most resistant were actually so strong. They said they fell upon their own immune system sword, so to speak. Right. Yep. Yeah. Just just fascinating. When the Shakes the Barley, again, another kind of revolution, uh, quite a bit after what we saw with, say, well, France back in the day, but you know, not, not too long after Russia. But for some reason, this almost felt different. And I think it was just because this is English-speaking country against English-speaking country, and we are native English speakers. So I think we right. inevitably look at this conflict differently. Yeah. It was also interesting to see a sort of guerrilla warfare taking place in the early 1920s. And you kind of get that, you know, prohibition mobster machine gun feel with, you know, the black cars and all that. But it's yeah. also still this, you know, I don't know if it actually got to the point where it's technically a war per se, but it was definitely a revolution going on. And yeah. with the Irish trying to break free of the shackles of the Brits and not being okay with good enough and they didn't want to be Australia or Canada. They wanted complete autonomy or they wanted to die trying. 
Right. And and we, we kind of talked about, I think, in this episode, um, but this is just kind of like the beginning of a conflict that lasted all the way up until like the late 90s with the Good Friday Agreement and stuff. Right. You initially had the trying to think the I forget the different terms of different factions, but initially the all or nothing group lost and the compromisers right. won, but then over the course of the next couple of decades, it kind of phased into complete separation from Britain that we see today. But then especially right. since you have Northern Ireland as part of Great Britain, sorry, as part of the United Kingdom, Great Britain is an island, as part right. of the United Kingdom on the island of Ireland that caused conflicts, like you said, up and through the 90s that I remember hearing about in middle school, terrorist attacks and stuff going on over there. Yeah. So. And I think this just, you know, movie wise, this was kind of a sleeper. This was, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't think yeah. I ever heard about this movie before um, I watched it for the podcast. And it's awesome. I really like Killian Murphy's performance in it. Absolutely. And yeah, it was I was really surprised at how much I liked it, um, especially considering that I had never even heard of it before. Right. I, I had peripherally heard it as one of those like, oh, good small time movies that you need to check out, but not a lot of people have. Like it was kind of on that radar for me. But yeah, it's I mean I hadn't gotten around to seeing it until this either. And then a little bit of departure departure from all the armed conflicts, which is it's kind of tough in a history podcast to not be so exclusively focused on armed conflicts, just because that tends to be not just what a lot of historical quote unquote events are are, but right. that's what they make movies about. They make movies about the right. armed conflicts. They don't make movies about the treaty that was signed in 1630 for non-military reasons. They don't. Yeah, that's that's the exciting stuff. Right, right. There's not a movie about the signing of the Magna Carta. There, there could be a movie about the battles that led up to the signing of the Magna Carta. But it, so, yes, with Inherit the Wind, we get to discuss in a courtroom setting the debate over the teaching of the theory of evolution. And this is based off of the. Scopes Monkey Trial, which it was kind of interesting to learn that it was kind of a, oh, setup's not exactly the right word, but the whole idea that... It was a publicity stunt. It was a publicity stunt, but from which, both sides, both sides of right, the court case. Oh, yeah, 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 which from both sides, and I think that is, it's so American that that's <laughs> like, you know, because the movie makes it seem like it's, this, it's you know, a, a battle of these, of principles of, you know, what these people really believe, and it's like... Not not really in real life. Nope, it was, they nope. were just trying to get their message out, you know, get exposure. Um, and it was honestly more of a it was more of a trial for the public in the in the, the you know, the, the discourse court of public opinion. Yeah, yeah. Than it was an actual trial for the law because the, the law was pretty clear. Like, hey, you can't teach us in schools. And the guy taught it in school. And they're like. Uh, yeah, like we'd have to find you guilty because technically you broke, you did break the law. But he only even did it because he, he like basically volunteered. I'll say I taught right. evolution if you want to use me yeah. as the guy on the trial. Like, yeah, yeah, yep. And the movie events a lot of stuff with his whole fiance being the daughter of the local preacher. Like that, that was all fabricated. So, but the speeches uh, were a lot of kind of modeled. A lot of the courtroom stuff was modeled off of what actually happened, and with the the big uh, oh, what were you? monologuing basically that they kind of did and that William Jennings Bryant dying not long after the trial was accurate. Of course, like in the movie, they actually have him drop dead at the end. And yeah, but he did. die. But I think it was, it was only like a day or two after. Yeah. It wasn't long after it was kind of, kind of, kind of crazy. And I I do remember that he was also the youngest 
party candidate for president back in like the 1890s. So he's like yep. 36 or I think 36 when he was actually the Democratic nominee for president. Yeah. And very, very interesting. And back to actually, this is this is definitely set aboard a military vessel, but not a, I don't think they actually get into a full on military conflict with the Sand Pebbles. This kind of wedges into a very interesting time period. And we we did a good job, I think, <laughs> pat ourselves on the back here a little bit, but covering <laughs> this part of the world. So basically Eastern Asia in the 1930s, pre-World War II, yep. post-World War One, there was a lot going on. And we cover it in several several movies here, and it's not something that is intuitively on our radar. It's like just kind of going through the American school system. You have a rough idea of World War One. You have a rough idea of World War Two. What you do not have any kind of rough idea of is what was going on in Eastern China at the time. Right. Even though I think we technically talk about it, it's not talked about enough that it sticks with us. So right. the Sand Pebbles was uh, now it's a fictional vessel, but it's part of the U.S. presence in China. That had been there. I forget what the turf they were actually guarding was called. That had some. It was term. a. It was a river. Um, Yangtze River Patrol or something was, like that. Yeah, the Yangtze River Patrols, and it was like it was like almost a hundred years. Right. The U.S. Navy was doing these patrols up and down this river, protecting you know U.S. interests. Yep. Business yep. interests, missionaries, like you see in the movie. But yeah, I mean, I had I had never heard of the Yangtze River Patrols, but it was a hundred year long operation by the Navy exactly. in China. And we just complete, completely ignore it. And then what happens in the background, and it's going gonna, gonna to happen here in a couple other movies we're going to get to later, is the beginnings of this Chinese Civil War. So yeah. we can talk about it with Ip Man. We can talk about, talk about it with The Last Emperor. But basically from the, would you use the word deposition to mean like a deposing of? Because you also use it as getting a statement from somebody. So, And you do call that deposing someone. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Word history thing. We're going to go with it. Anyway, so the deposition, <laughs> that doesn't sound right at all. But the definition of, <laughs> I said definition, the deposition, deposing of the emperor in 1912-ish China, leading to then decades of conflict uh, before the communists finally take over at the tail end of or after World War II. That is a correct usage of the word deposition. Just look it up. I am very smart. Is it kind of smart if you're accidentally smart? Yes. <laughs> okay. But yes, a, a, a good movie. Again, historical setting, but fictional specifics as far as right. characters and events go. So that's kind of why we did it as a bonus episode. But also a good movie. Best Picture nominee. That's yeah. kind of one of those big epics that not a lot of talk, people talk about. Very, very racist. <laughs> yeah, and, and almost a... Almost a... Not really a, a big through plot in this movie either. It was no. almost like a... Kind of like a collection of short stories kind of put together. It almost has a feel like it was based off of a book of vignettes or something. It's almost kind of like a... Or like it was supposed to be a TV show, and then they ended up <laughs> making it into a movie. Yeah, oh yeah, it definitely has that feel. Actually, yeah, that... So, uh, podcast, have you have we talked about the Rewatchables, the podcast with uh, Bill Simmons, where they kind of rewatch classic movies from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s and talk about them? I think we've I think okay. we've talked about it before. I don't I don't know if I've ever listened to it. Okay, so they kind of gamify it. And one one of the questions they ask when they're talking about these movies is, would it work if they remade it as a ten episode Netflix series? So to your point, okay. the Sand Pebbles, heck yes, it would probably be way better if they remade that whole story as a ten episode Netflix series where you could kind of actually explore all the relationships and all the nuances and yeah. things wouldn't feel so rushed and 
maybe they could redo it without the racism with with honestly with a lot of these movies i think they would well some of them i would say no um so like 1917 i think that's good as, as a movie correct just the way it is. correct but viva zapata absolutely <laughs> Yes, Viva Zapata. Um, I think The Wind That Shakes the Barley would be an awesome, like a 10-part, you know, miniseries or something. I think Lawrence of Arabia would be an awesome 10-part miniseries, which honestly, like, you can just watch that movie half an hour at a time and just call it like a seven-part movie. <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> that, that's actually a very good call. <laughs> but yeah, Sam Pebbles would be a prime candidate for that. So moving on back to Europe. And again, I, I love this interstitial period between world war one and world war two from a historical standpoint not like i wouldn't want to live through it but so the weimar republic in germany is when cabaret takes place and we've, we've probably talked about on the episode that this is probably one of the best movies not to win best picture because it was up against the first godfather movie i believe and yep. so so captivating of a film fictional characters but again set against the beginnings of the Nazi takeover and you go from them talking throughout the movie of these Nazis being the background thugs that they hope to be able to use to rid the country of the communists to by the end, the Nazi kid is singing a song and you realize like, Oh, the Nazi numbers are skyrocketing and there's more and more people wearing the swastika. And as we're getting into probably about the 1933 time or 30, probably still 32 by the end of the movie, but it's just a little bit away from the full on Nazi takeover of Germany and the dissolution of the Weimar Republic. And again, a great movie, completely separate, very, very Dr. Shivago-y, where it's just kind of this yeah. separate story taking place with this stuff going on in the background. But yeah. I love this movie. And another one, just like uh, The Fiddler on the Roof, the music is awesome. Um, and they're actually like the music is actually, you know, being played on stage in the in the movie. Yes. And I was forget is that the diegetic or the non diegetic? I get that confused. is diegetic. OK, diegetic means basically natural and non diegetic is it's not real. Right. Like it's in it's in that world. Like yeah, the characters okay. can hear it, that kind of thing. OK. And then also, like with the with the Nazis at the beginning, there it's almost like they're kind of like a mild nuisance. Like, ah, get out of here, you, you, you Nazis! Like, you guys scram, you, you kids. kids! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the end, it's like when they do that final pan across the audience, it's like everybody's Nazis now. Yes, and all of a sudden you're not, you don't uh, dismiss them. You're now a little nervous about them. Right. Yep. And then we got into we did a bonus episode on Hugo, both for. Actually, almost exclusively for the role of the history of movies. So again, yes. it's set in the same place, set, set the same year as Cabaret, nineteen thirty one, and it, but it does kind of give us some film history when we meet George Melies, this old man at a train station, uncanny to which they actually get most of his life right within the movie. The character yeah. of Hugo himself is fictitious, but this was a del- I thought a delightful story, a very interesting departure from Martin Scorsese. You would never think of this as being a Martin Scorsese movie. Right. And I guess it did was originally written as a children's book. So again, another historical fiction where he kind of takes his imaginary characters and puts them in this real situation. And unlike anything super big historical, like setting against the Russian Revolution or against the Nazis taking over Germany. It's like, oh, no, set against this one particular original filmmaker who, as an old man, was poor and working in a train station. So that's the historical event that he chose to tell this whole tale against. And very, very neat. 
not super important historically, but a great opportunity to talk about the history of film. Yeah. And some of the like cool stuff that he was doing, you know, um, like special effects wise and like um, trick shot wise and yes. stuff. I mean, even in the at the very, very beginning, like before movies even had sound and he was doing, you know, and doing all of the effects in camera with, yes. you know, just cuts and then rewinding and filming, you know, something different that's happening at the same time. And they, you know, they do that cool scene where they they have, you know, the guys fighting the skeletons and then they stop and they say, all right, everyone freeze. And the skeletons leave and they come in and they yeah. set off the pyrotechnics and they roll the camera again. So cool to see that stuff. And it, got, and it gets me thinking, we we talk about how almost, you know, trivially so, we talk about how our smartphones have more computing power than, you know, the shuttle that landed on the moon and, and all those kinds of things. But despite that vast leap in technology we're over we're over 110 120 years past when george melies was making his films and if i said hey logan whip me up a george melies style video real quick it would take you basically as long as it took him and yep. you could figure it out but it's that's how in depth all of this stuff was and how the equipment i don't know it's just, it's just he was impressive he was very impressive and it's it's not none of that stuff was intuitive I mean, he had to figure all that stuff out and invent all of it. And I think that right, that, he wasn't you know, copying in, anybody in, in yeah. a day where you can you can take a computer and make it look like there's a 50 foot transformer standing next to you. Like it may not seem like it's that cool. But um, I mean, at, at that time, like movies weren't even I think we even talked about this in the podcast, but movies weren't even considered like they were like a gimmick. It was like, oh, yeah, movies like this right. is kind of cool. You, you know, oh, look, a moving picture. Isn't that, you know, neat? Like nobody really cares, you know, the. Um, they, I don't. I don't think anybody at the time even could have foreseen how big of a deal movies would be. You know, just entertainment wise. And it's yeah, it's just it's crazy right. to see like this one guy. You know, pioneered so many different ways of using a camera um, to tell stories. Right. Including, it, I think they didn't. Was it in that movie where they talk about they hand painted all the? Yep. Yeah. The all cell the frames. They actually had some color films. Yeah. They they hand painted each frame, so they actually had some color. And to your point, and it's not this simple, but yes, essentially, George Melies invented the idea of telling stories with moving pictures. And right. that's that's just so significant and a very good movie that even got me to tear up and definitely worth checking out. Now, the first movie that we're not quite into World War II with an asterisk because we're not quite right. into the European theater that is commonly considered World War II, but we definitely now, with Ip Man, get into the conflicts that begin the warfare that rolls into and becomes World War II when the right. Chinese, or sorry, when the Japanese invade China, and, you know, Manchuria, actually, yeah, Manchuria, and then, actually, well, they had actually invaded, I guess, probably Manchuria back during the Sand Pebbles time. Yeah, well, and then, because this is this takes place in I want to say like 34, 36, like right around there, right? It's like the Germans are in control over in uh, Germany. I think it's later. But... I think it's I think it's we have okay. It says nineteen thirty eight on our spreadsheet. Okay, okay. Um, or thirty, yeah, nineteen thirty eight. So Japan had already controlled Manchuria, but they were getting a little more aggressive with the rest of China, is I if I recall yeah. correctly. Well, because yeah. this is and the, yeah, because this is a different province, I think, because they speak Cantonese. Oh, as opposed to Mandarin, right. Yeah. But yes, the story itself, now this is an interesting one. It, it's set against the historical thing we just talked about, and it does star a actual historical figure, but in kind of a unique way, they're separate. Ip Man's right. role 
actually has nothing to do with the events other than he did live through them. And actually, that's where the movie kind of then departs is it kind of does tell his... Actually, it doesn't really tell things he actually did, really, because he probably wasn't even in this part of China at the time. But he was a martial arts expert who then did go on to basically... Uh, was it the Wang Chung? Yeah, he, he basically invented Wing Chun, and he his biggest claim to fame is being the, the teacher of Bruce Lee. He taught Bruce Lee Kung Fu. Right, and it's the same style that Jackie Chan uses and Donnie Yen uses, and, and of course yeah. Donnie Yen plays him in the movie. But yes, you, right. did, you get the, and the movie kind of just focuses on him getting into this battle with the Japanese guy who is also familiar with martial arts. Yeah. That's all fabricated, but It Man was real, and the Japanese... Did invade the area where he lived. Yes. I think I think him working in the in you know shoveling coal or whatever it was that he was doing. I think that is um, at least somewhat historically accurate. Okay, uh, where he kind of you know was was forced out of his his mansion basically. Right, because he was basically a what you, uh, just an aristocrat. Yeah, yeah, but man, Donnie Yen is awesome. I I hope to see him in more more stuff. You know, more American stuff. I, I think it's right. He's in Rogue One, and everyone loved him in Rogue One. And then, like, he doesn't just do a lot of English language stuff. It seems I know. And honestly, like, I I wish they would have made him like some badass Jedi guy in the actual Star Wars movies instead of relegating him to a almost Jedi right. in, in Rogue One, you know, one off movie. But yeah, you know, almost kind of implying that he's a Force believer who has no Force ability. Is that almost kind of the vibe we're getting? Yeah, and like you know, but come on, man, give that guy a light. Dude. He's a squib, so they they made him to a squib. Like we can use the Harry Potter term. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give that give that guy a lightsaber, though. And then, and I don't know if this is my favorite movie on the list, but I might argue it's the best movie on the list. Casablanca. Holy cow, I love this movie so much, and it gets us into the beginnings of the World War One. It's actually set in World December. War II. Sorry, oh man, World War Two. <laughs> It takes place in December 1941, but they don't mention the U.S. involvement. So U.S. involvement or the exact date in December we're working with isn't particularly important. So this is pre-World War. Sorry. So this is pre-U.S. involvement in the war. But France has been now uh, taken over by Germany. And so you have Vichy France still exists in southern France. And Morocco, where Casablanca is, is controlled by the French. And it's kind of this... Free space almost because you have yeah. you have parties from all factions of the war that are here and not really fighting and it's kind of this weird limbo area so the French are in charge but the German officials definitely have some sway probably because the Germans do you know control Paris and everything at this time right because Vichy France was kind of a puppet state of the Nazis yeah so it gets, yeah and of course then the the main theme throughout is then the the not just the French resistance, but the overall resistance movement underground yeah. fighting the Nazis in any way they can throughout Germany. And that's kind of what the whole plot. So, the, again, like many of these movies, the characters in Casablanca are fictional, but the world they inhabit is realistic. Yeah. And the French underground, and sorry, it's not, sorry, the main underground guy isn't French. So that's why I kind of, kind of keep backing he's off from that phrase. Czech, but, I think, yeah, he's in the movie, Czech, Czech. So, it's just kind of an interesting look into the people in Europe who were kind of forced to do whatever they could to undermine the Nazi war effort, but weren't able to be part of a full-on armed resistance. And similar to what we'll talk to when we talk about when we get to Battle of Algiers. Now, the resistance didn't resort to terrorist activities per se, but they were definitely trying to 
win hearts and minds and undermine the effort. It is interesting. Why do we never hear about? Do they were they not able to? Was there no kind of resistance effort that was trying to like bomb Berlin underground? Like we never, I've never heard any. Stories I don't know like about that. Berlin, but I know. I mean, the the French resistance they they killed a bunch of Nazis like in France. But did they ever like blow up things and kill civilians? Were more of terrorist activities? Oh, I don't. I don't. I, I mean, not that I've heard of. I don't know. Well, I, I'm I'm just curious to what extent. One, did it happen or not? And two, if it did happen, do we just not hear about it because they were the quote-unquote good guys and we don't want to talk about their terrorist activities? I, I don't know. I don't want to presume that they killed civilians, but I'm also saying I wouldn't be surprised if in an attempt to undermine the German war effort, there wasn't something like that that took place. Kind of like when we drone strike the Middle East, we take out civilians all the time and we don't consider ourselves terrorists for doing it, but because we're the quote-unquote so- good guys, right? It looks like, and this is just a, a very a ten second very Google search, cursory, yeah. uh, you know, research here. Um, it looks like that most of their efforts were um, distributing information, gathering intelligence, and also counterintelligence against the Nazis. So it's more then, spying than attacking, uh, right? And then, and then also maintaining um, uh, escape networks to get people out of concentration camps and prisoner of war camps. So it's more similar to maybe the Underground Railroad. Right. It wasn't as much we're going to blow up the Germans. It's we're going to do all this stuff that isn't, you know, not nonviolent stuff, but like we're going to help, you know, our friends escape and we're going to distribute all this information and make it a lot harder for the Germans to wage war here and make it a lot easier for the allies. Okay, okay. But not necessarily, you know, blowing up train stations and stuff. Right. Like we saw in Lawrence of Arabia, where they did kind of blow up uh, some trains to disrupt the Ottomans and stuff. Right. Schindler's List. Obvious, iconic World War II movie that I think kind of to both of our surprises was extremely accurate historically, depressingly so, focusing on, yes, actual historical figures with Oscar Schindler, Ishak Stern, and I was hoping by the end of the sentence I would remember Ray Fiennes' character's name, but I did Uh, not. Eamon... Eamon Goff? Gosh? Eamon Goff, yes. So yes, those guys were all historic. The movie is... Very accurate. It's, there's definitely a few things here and there, but for the most yep. part, you can watch Schindler's List and be depressed at the accuracy of it. And the 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 worst part about it is that it like that's not that's not even like the worst. Like, oh, right. It's not like oh, this is the worst concentration camp. Like that's that was par for the course at every concentration camp. Right. Was right. just that level of you know, cruelty, basically. I, I think the biggest lesson maybe from it is that, I mean, it's, it's definitely easy to subscribe, and I would argue I, we probably do subscribe to the idea that there were no good Nazis. But Oscar Schindler was a Nazi. The Jews considered him good. <laughs> he saved 1,200 people and was buried in Jerusalem because he was basically an Israeli national hero. Right. And was a Nazi. Right. And I think I think we talked about this um, in the original episode um, but I also think it kind of bears repeating because it's kind of an interesting thing to talk about. And I think he actually talks about it in the movie. He says, you know, like the only reason that he was able to do any of that stuff in the first place was because he was a Nazi. Right. He had this access and this level of of prestige isn't quite the right word. But just, yeah, he was in the right position in society at the time to help. Right. And, and no one but a Nazi, to your point, could have done this. Right. And then also worth uh, repeating is the idea that... He didn't set out to do this through any kind of altruistic feeling. He was actually an opportunist, right. basically looking to make a buck. 
Right at the, at the beginning, it was, it was he was mostly just trying to find um, cheap labor for his right. factories because he even tells Ben Kingsley's character he's like, "Don't get the Polish; they cost too much. Get the Jews; they don't charge as much for the Jews." Yep. Yeah, just a horrible look at the concentration camps, but also a in a dark, not dark way. I don't know. In a way, it's an uplifting human story that is important. It's a tough watch. And again, they also do a good job of not making Schindler perfect by any means, you know, with just, yeah, again, some of his, his selfishness along the way. But then he kind of, by the end, breaks down that he couldn't do more. And, and again, yeah. I'm, I'm getting a little emotional just kind of even thinking about it. It's, it's it's a powerful, powerful movie, and you need to watch it if you haven't. Yep. And I totally understand if that if the one time that you watch it is the only time that you ever watch yep, it. Yep, yep, there you go. But you need to watch it once. And... Staying with World War II for the next few movies here still. Uh, Imitation Game, we did as a bonus episode. And this was, okay, I don't want to say it's my biggest disappointment on the, on the list. It's fine, but like honestly skip it and just watch Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really, really like the movie Imitation Game. But I would say, honestly, so it's number, uh, what do we get? 64B. So this, you know, we came out of the bonus episodes. This, you know, in the 60s for the movies I've done in this whole project. Probably the most disappointment I felt upon doing the research when I yeah. realized how inaccurate this great movie was. And I was so disappointed because the movie is so good and tells such a good story. And it's mostly an, an entire fa- a complete fabrication. And like the milestones are correct. It's like all the watts are technically correct, but the hows are just pure invention and it's just they basically yeah. made everything up whole cloth using yep. real facts and characters in a setting and so yeah it's about code breaking during world war ii i still think it's worth watching because i do think it's a great movie but kind of like it's, it's the braveheart thing braveheart's a great movie very historically inaccurate same with the invitation game the thing that like that i think irked me the most about it was um at the end when they talk about like oh he you know took these chemical castration pills and like that's what killed him and or that's what made him kill himself and like historically there's there's not really evidence for that he was he, yeah, he was he had cycled off of them by then or something he yeah. basically said he took the drugs and then he was like back to his old self and he was you know working on stuff i mean he did end up killing himself but right to what extent the drugs know. played a direct role it might have been more of an indirect role and right yeah. Anyway, great movie, not very accurate, but Alan Turing, uh, Alan Turing did play an important role in the history of the development of the computers that we use today and did work toward the British war effort of code breaking and dealing with the German codes. And a lot of that was kind of kept secret at the time. So very, very interesting. Just take the film events themselves with a grain of salt. Yes. Then flipping to the exact opposite, with downfall like schindler's list probably actually probably even more so as accurate as we said schindler's list was downfall is probably even more historically accurate because could we even point to a single inaccuracy in downfall no and to the contrary stuff that i was like okay there's no way that there's historical basis for this like when the mom when i think it's goebbels's wife yeah is killing all of her children and like the last one she has to like hold the oh basically force her mouth, mouth shut. I, was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I was like they i was like there's no way this is real like this is like you guys don't have to try this hard to make nazis look bad right but it turns out that there was actual like 
quote unquote forensic evidence. Like when that girl was found, she had bruises consistent with right. having the poison held in her mouth. And it's like, oh, okay, no, that that's just real. That's just exactly how bad they were. Yes. So yes, this tells of the final days of Adolf Hitler in the bunker. The protagonist is technically a personal secretary of his who I don't want to say turned a blind eye. Even that, so it's tough because she ultimately did not forgive herself for her role in aiding the Nazi movement. But right. she is someone we would not consider a Nazi. Who she was just a young girl who took a job, and right. it's fairly easy to actually kind of forgive her because she did not know the level of the atrocities. But in her later life, in real life, we actually see her interviewed, like the actual person interviewed as an old woman. She did not forgive herself and says that her youth right. was no excuse for naivety and. Right, man. Talk about important movies. Downfall. I th- man, if you're gonna, you flash forward maybe in 500 years from now, how many of these movies on this list are still watched by historians or people? I mean, Downfall is hard not to earmark as yeah. They're showing this to a history class 500 years from now because I get yep. one because of its accuracy and its relevance to this point in time. I mean, that kind of gets into a whole larger discussion of what films do kind of have that lasting power. Because we can say, oh, 500 years, that's crazy. It's like, well, no, we have, you know, Shakespeare plays are 400 years old. So yeah. it's not that crazy to talk about art that can last. And film is just something that is not that old of a medium. We, we, the oldest films are barely over 100 years old at this point. So we just don't know yet. But, man, Downfall is iconic. And it's only from, what, 2004, I believe. But... It is. Yeah. It's got staying power in spades, and I I don't think it gets a lot of love necessarily. Like I mean, people who people who see it really like it, but I don't think that many people have seen it. Not a lot of people watch foreign films. I'm sure, I, I would imagine Germany is pretty well watched, but other than yeah. a lot of them, probably don't want to be reminded of this time period. Right. But yeah, I mean that that that's what I need to say on that, and then. Letters from Iwo Jima. So the next two movies, we kind of wanted to look at everything from the Japanese point of view. So Letters from Iwo Jima does tell the Japanese side of the events of the Battle of Iwo Jima and yep. how it was essentially a lost cause from the beginning. So it's very, yep. very depressing to get to know these guys on the island knowing we as the audience are going to die and they as soldiers knew they were going to die. And the Americans yep. just had such vast superiority that they stood no chance. And this movie, this movie and Downfall, I think both do a good job at humanizing people who in most uh, war movies right. from World War II told from an American perspective are they're the bad guys and they're they're usually evil or cowardly or, you know, some combination of the two. But Downfall and Letters from Iwo Jima, I, I think Letters from Iwo Jima is it almost is it kind of makes you sympathize with him a little bit obviously downfall doesn't i mean it, it humanizes hitler but it doesn't you're at the end of the movie you're not like oh man that hitler he kind of got right. bumped he's up. he's evil but he's an evil human as opposed to a caricature right yeah versus um, this one yeah this one you actually i mean i i actually felt bad for the like the like those kids cuz it's like what are their choices their choices are fight to the death kill yourself you know, or or surrender, which to them is worse than killing yourself. Worse than yeah, way worse than death. And it's also different too, because obviously, when we see the Nazis in the bunker, these are Nazi leadership. These are people who one hold the horrible ideology, and two were instigating the conflict in the first place. Versus the right. Japanese soldiers, this this likens back more to what we talked about with All Quiet on the Western Front. These guys are just foot soldiers. 
even yeah. the even the generals are just following orders and yeah. they have no culpability in the you know the i don't know the ideology that led to the conflict in the first place and yeah you definitely feel bad for them from a historical standpoint obviously the battle is correct the generals at least the two main uh leaders they focus on are historical figures the one played by ken watanabe and then the other guy whose name i forget but who was an olympic uh equestrian those guys are historical figures i think all the letters they kind of talk about and the common soldiers I didn't see anything that led me to believe they were specific historical people and they were just kind no, of representative. I, I think they were based on amalgamation, just research yeah. they had done of, you know, guys that wrote letters home from right. these forward islands back to mainland Japan. Right. A, a, a very good movie. Definitely yeah. worth watching. Yeah. And a good uh, double feature with Flags of Our Fathers, which is also Clint Eastwood. It's like the companion piece to this movie. Correct. Um, but that's told from the perspective of like the American marines that were there and then this is you know from the perspective of um the the japanese soldiers who were there but yeah awesome movie yes and then we button this one up and we end world war ii with the grave of the fireflies another one that is kind of a must watch are i just say the most depressing movie on this list because we got some depressing movies on this list but it's still in oh, contention man. I, I mean but it's between that and schindler's list probably but honestly like I, I don't know. It's close because it involves children. I think, it, and and we talk about you know you know who's who's innocent or who's guilty. Well, there's no doubt that the children are innocent, and so right. yes, this is about a young brother and sister pre the nuclear bombings. They don't get involved directly with the the nuclear bombings of Japan, but there is definitely the bombing going on, and their family is victim a uh, victim of that. And they basically they they starve to death, and I, yep. that's not, and that's that's not a spoiler because you know from the first moments that they die, and have starved well, to yeah, death. Well, yeah, because he he says like the date is whatever September whatever. Right, it's the day that I died. Right, right. And I think you see the the like the train workers or whatever like find yes, his body. They, yeah, they so find his like body the in a train station, starved to death. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's but it's this is also very it, you know it's one of those isn't it a non Miyazaki Studio Ghibli film? Yes. Okay, yep. so very artistic, and I don't mean that in a oh, uh, artsy fartsy way. Like, like no, this is a beautiful film, as sad as it is, and its sadness is almost part of its beauty. And it sounds like you could watch it in either Japanese or English. As uh, Logan well, and I took two sides of that, and both had I was about the same impact. It floored both of us, and you watched it in Japanese dubbed, and I watched it. Uh, or, or you watched it Japanese with subtitles, and I watched it dubbed into English. Correct, and it floored both of us. So, which and it, it's it's not that bad um, as far as like the mouth movements not matching up. If that's a issue yeah, because yeah, animated that I think that's animated yeah. right. And I've even watched I've even watched Rashomon I think dubbed, and I didn't mm. really have a big issue with it. Now mm. that was also because it was it was older. I think a newer movie dubbed would drive me crazy, but yeah, but yes, watch watch Grave of the Fireflies. So we're finally out of World War II with a very interesting true story in Kantiki about a Scandinavian man who successfully sailed from South America to Polynesia proving that it was po- with native technology proving that it was possible for native peoples to have done something similar a thousand years before and that one sentence that you just said is literally the entire movie that's it correct it's the that only- <laughs> it's that but like an hour and a half long <laughs> correct and so we can and actually move on well, I, I should say it's there's a, there's more stuff that happens but that's where the historical accuracy part ends 
all yeah, the shark yeah. attack and the and the radio problems and the, everything else made up. Right. The, the only thing I wanted to, to to button was that the movie makes it seem that like he proved that this happened. In reality, yes. all he proved that it was possible, and they still right. don't think it happened in any significant way. Like the Polynesia right. was not colonized from South America, but it may have had visitors from South America. Right. And historically, I think the coolest thing is that this movie is a fictional version of a story that was also documented as a documentary, which you see being filmed in the movie. And that one best documentary at the Oscars in like 1950. Yeah. It's like the opposite of breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> like, yeah. It's so weird. They're like building the fourth wall. <laughs> and then Gandhi, who I expressed my, my love for this human being and a very good movie that kind of upset E.T. at the Oscars we talked about, but a movie you did not appreciate as much as I did just because it is kind of a slow, slow paced and another long one. Yeah, I think this one would have been better as a Netflix 10 part series. OK, gotcha. And, and I'm also I mean, I, I'm also just not as much of a an actual Mahatma Gandhi fanboy. As OK, you. yeah. No, no, like, but again, it's more just the spirit in the sense that like the actual like human spirit behind what drove this guy I don't think it was anything that I had realized before I saw this film and then subsequently read his autobiography and just yeah. how impressive of a human in his worldview I just found fascinating. And this idea yeah. of, oh, aggressive, nonviolent resistance and yeah. the principles involved with that. And then, of course, how he is considered a father of modern India and successfully ousted the British from the country. And he did it without the sword, without the gun. He did it through nonviolent resistance. And not only nonviolent, but he wasn't a politician. He's not a monarch. Right. He's not from some big, you know, dynasty, some crazy family. You know, he's not a military leader. He was just a guy who thought a certain way and was like, I think that this is how it should be. And everyone was, you know, eventually was able to convince all of India. Hey, you know what? This is how it should be. It would be like, and again, you can tell me if this is a good analogy or not. It would be like if Thomas Paine had won the Revolutionary War because it wasn't a war. Thomas Paine just convinced the British to leave. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That is crazy. <laughs> and then, okay, we already talked about a little bit The Last Emperor. But just, so we, this is at our point on the timeline here in 1950 because that's kind of where the plot begins within the story they tell us in the movie but this movie covers about 50 60 years going back to yeah. 1908 when Puyi Yi first became emperor of china as like a two-year-old and then it goes all the way through his death focusing well it kind of goes back and forth so to go it goes from his childhood and then it cuts to him in this prison by the the china the communists have him in prison and are getting him yep. to quote unquote confess by writing a biography and then it cuts back and forth to him going through not just his childhood in the forbidden city but then as he becomes a man in his early 20s in the 20s kind of being this player and he has two wives and everything because he's a former emperor and then getting recruited by the japanese and this is where it definitely parallels what was happening with it man the japanese recruited puyi to be basically the puppet emperor of Manchuko, which he was cool with because he's like, sweet, I can say I'm emperor again, and I'm not super concerned with what the Japanese are doing to my country because I was just, I mean, I yeah, I'm kind of still rich, but my country ousted me, so yeah, whatever, sure, the Japanese want to make me emperor again, I'll be emperor again. And then what kind of right. level of culpability he then had for contributing to the Japanese 
atrocities against China. And that's what then the communists are trying to suss out in getting a confession from him. So a fascinating uh, movie. And definitely uh, this guy is on my list of (laughs) candidates for most interesting lives ever lived. Uh, This guy's life is nuts. Um, Oh, and also uh, Peter O'Toole is in this movie as his tutor. So another... Let's. Uh, I'm gonna start. We're gonna start a list here, and then I'm gonna make you vote at the end. Oh, jeez. Okay. So we, we want to talk about. It. Yeah, we'll talk about it at the end. Okay. So okay. then we jump to Akiru. I would put this in the category of Hugo. Actually, even less so. So in the sense that there was, we only talked about this movie as an excuse to talk about Akira Kurosawa. Just what we talked about Hugo, so we could talk about the history of movies. But this is, is an interesting look at the bureaucracy of post-war Japan and how quickly Japan recovered after World War II, which is frankly surprising. But there is no specific historical character. There's no specific historical event. But this is a really good movie, and it is set kind of an interesting time period in Japan's history. Uh, but I think we can probably just move right along to Avita, which we will also skip very quickly over because this movie was trash. And... Yep. It is historically interesting dealing with Argentina and Eva Perón, who was the first lady, very popular first lady of Argentina, who died of cancer at just like 33 years old. And that's about all we need to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Motorcycle Diaries, very good movie. And I don't think, and I, I, don't, I didn't necessarily do the research to get into it more now, but we did not get into super extensively Che's post-Motorcycle Diaries life. Well, we did obviously talk about the revolutions, but we didn't get into detail about the Cuban Revolution or anything like that because it didn't really come up at this point in the timeline. And I just, again, I hadn't really done the research. But yes, an interesting look at a important revolutionary of the 20th century as a young man and a young doctor. Right. And kind of seeing the, you know, a, an experience that was formative to him and that kind of, the the things that he saw on that trip kind of informed the uh, ideology that he would have uh, later. Shaped his worldview, yeah. Yes, when he became a violent communist revolutionary. Yes. yes. Who may have been ideologically pure from the beginning, but was willing to use ruthless means to accomplish his goals. Yeah. Good night and good luck. Again, maybe a little American-centric, but it is set during the Cold War and... And yeah. an interesting look at the communist scare in the United States. And I don't know to what extent other countries had similar kind of scares. Obviously, there were definitely communist takeovers outside of Russia, and we haven't really talked about a lot of those. Yeah, well, and even in even in countries that, I mean, where there even when there weren't communist takeovers, you know, communist at that point in time was kind of like, a, you know, like everyone's kind of looking for the communists, you know, in America, you had, you know, it's, it's embodied with the, the McCarthy stuff, but I mean, all, all over the world at, at this time in capitalist countries, people who were, who are left-leaning or, or communists or, or communist sympathizers were, were kind of being sought out. I, I ended up doing a little more research for uh, another project that kind of unearthed some stuff. I guess I missed the first time around when we talked about this. So this is set, I think, in 1954 when Edward R. Murrow kind of calls Joseph McCarthy out for, you know, it's the whole have you no shame. And he just, he's going too far and it is kind of become a witch hunt. What I didn't realize is that the congressional effort to root out communists in the United States predates Joseph McCarthy's involvement by a few years. 
Oh, really? So the like, um, I forget the what the exact acronym is, but it's like the House on American Activities committee or whatever okay so in, in the whole like when it was going into hollywood and interviewing a lot of them a lot of that was happening in like 1947 1948 joseph mccarthy wasn't on anybody's radar until 1950 when he did a couple addresses and i forget exactly what the platform was but basically it was like in february 1950 he gave one big speech that kind of went quote-unquote viral for the time and then followed it up with another one about a month later and so basically overnight, now he was already a sitting senator from Wisconsin. I don't know exactly what year he was elected, 46, 48, whatever. But he was already a sitting senator in 1950, becomes nationally prominent, though, when he gave these addresses specifically talking about the threat of communists in the government. But it was already on everybody's radar. There was already Hollywood people who had been prosecuted, who the Hollywood 10 ended up going to prison in 1950, after some failed appeals, before Joseph McCarthy was ever involved. So oh, okay. he then became the poster child for it because he was basically a conspiracy theorist talking about, oh, there's this many sitting members of Congress who are actual Communist Party members. And just he basically took something that was already being investigated, was already some level of threat. I mean, again, we could debate, you know, obviously, yes, there were communists in the United States to what extent they were actually trying to, quote, you know, take over the government or anything like that. Hard to say, but they were trying to root it out, arguably while violating the First Amendment, because you can hold whatever beliefs you want in the United States if you're not trying to, you know, throw overthrow the government or whatever, or, or right. hurt anybody. You can have, you can think whatever you want to think. But McCarthy, again, took it to the, I guess, you know, the Alex Jones, Rush Limbaugh level. And he gained national prominence through becoming the poster child for all of that. Huh. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, okay, so yes, Battle of Algiers was definitely a look at the, I don't want to say the justification of terrorism, but definitely a look at terrorist tactics that were being used by a desperate native population who felt they had no other alternative. Yep, and another sleeper. I really like this movie. Yes, uh, absolutely. I didn't think, I mean, it. I didn't know if I was going to like it very much, but yeah, it was it was awesome. The whole movie, pretty much the whole movie is in French and in Arabic. Correct. Um, and it's, again, foreign language, black and white, but man, it is it's good. And it's it's another one where you don't agree with everything that everyone does in that movie. It's almost like, do you ever uh, on Reddit see the, the threads about like, you know, am I the asshole? Oh, <laughs> yeah, you're talking like about, that. yeah, yeah. In in that in that subreddit they they have you know different responses so like you're the asshole or they're the asshole or some people just say esh everyone sucks here <laughs> you're right everyone sucks here that's correct that's kind of like how this the the this movie summed up like you know yeah the French they suck because they're you know oppressing the native population but at the same time the native population then responds by blowing up a bunch of innocent people. And then they, you know, they get like confined to these ghettos and they're, you know, do, it's so, yeah, everyone sucks in this movie. Yes. The the easiest comp on the list is when the shakes the barley. These are, it's yeah. almost an identical conflict where yep. it's here. It's uh, the French over the Algerians and when the shakes the barley, it was the British over the Irish, but it's essentially the same thing. And like you said, everybody sucks here. There are no good guys and you understand where both sides are coming from. And it's just a horrible situation all around where the French are nominally in control. They are losing control. The native Algerians are resorting to terrorist attacks. The French followed it up with torturing, 
potential suspects to get information to stop the terrorist attacks. And it ultimately, though, did lead to the French losing their control in Algeria and Algeria becoming independent. And I mean, that kind of had a ripple effect a mess that kind of falls outside of our timeline here. But a great movie, which you pointed out, the music has a very Tarantino vibe, again, and intentionally so. Wasn't this a Marconi score? Yeah, it, so it's a Marconi score. Um, it shows up in a, a, it shows up in at least uh, Inglorious Bastards, which is where I recognize it. When I heard them, I didn't know that it was from this movie. So when I heard the score at the beginning of the movie, it's it's very distinct. Um, and I was like, man, I know I've heard that somewhere before. And I was like, I think that is in the movie Inglorious Bastards somewhere. So I started, I like stopped the movie and I started watching Inglorious Bastards. And it's not very far in. Huh. Um, it's when they, I, it might show up more than once, but I, I know for sure it shows up when they are um I'm picturing breaking. the French girl walking and like to the rhythm or the German girl walking or somebody. No, yeah. it's the, the first time you see it or the first time that you hear it is when, when they are breaking Hugo Stiglitz out of his jail okay when when brad pitts is, is telling him we you know your status is not to kill or still amateur we want to see if you want to go pro while he's saying that the music in the background is the theme from the battle of algiers okay so i think i misunderstood the first time you talked about that so it's not similar it's the exact music he uses the exact music oh from okay the battle of algiers is in the movie yeah okay that's crazy okay uh moving on to Another African set movie getting more into Central Africa and the Congo with Lumumba. And man, th this was another one that's kind of off my radar because this isn't Battle of Algiers is a famous classic movie. Lumumba right. is not really on anybody's radar. It is a solid movie, but no. it's not considered a classic of cinema by any means. But it's very well done. A very interesting character who it's, you know, the, the movie kind of paints it that he gets railroaded. I think real life is a little more complicated than that but yeah I, I think again i think what we said at the time was lumumba is the most complicated situation of any movie in this entire project yes and it it would be hard to follow if everyone was speaking english in that movie but they're not <laughs> and to read subtitles and understand what's going on and there's so many names and a bunch of them are you know they're they're names of of people from the congo so it's you know to us it's like these names aren't like clicking you know, in my head, like it's hard to organize them and, and remember who's who and who's, you know, has alliances with who and who's has disagreements yes. with who. Yes. It, it is a tough movie to follow, but it's good. Um, yes. It's just, you know, viewer yeah, it's, it's a it's a glimpse of something that we as Americans are definitely not aware of. And just, yeah, all the parties at play who had a vested interest in Congolese independence at the time from Belgium, but then, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union end up playing a role or trying to play a role, and then the various factions within the Congo itself. And again, an absolute mess of a situation, but a very interesting movie that is well done and worth a look just to kind of give you a rough idea of what was going on in Africa at the time. And this was, yeah. this, was uh, this was the uh, late 50s, I believe, mid 50s. It says 1960. Or 1960. Oh, we're into so, 1960. Well, it starts okay. out um, a little earlier because it shows like his rise, not rise to power, but you know, him gaining popularity. And then I think his 
whatever it was like two months or some really short time of actually being the prime minister yes uh, or the president whichever it was um was in 1960 okay um but there's also on youtube um i don't remember the name of it but there is a very cool documentary about the same time period in the congo where they uh do a bunch of interviews with the guy who was the cia chief of station at the embassy at the time oh interesting and it's it's really cool because you get to see, like, he talks a lot about America's interest in the Congo at the time and, like, the different ways they were thinking about trying to assassinate him and stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, that was, that was I, I, like I said, I don't remember the name of it, but. Do they paint Lumumba as the bad guy or just someone we need to get rid of for our own interests? So he's kind of almost talks about it like it was just kind of, like, purely his job. Like it's he didn't business. really feel one way. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's just business. Um, but I think it was mostly a, a they wanted to keep the Soviets out of right. Africa. And Lumumba was kind of opening the door to them because we had closed the door in his face. But yeah, it's... Yes, because, ex- yeah, exactly. It was one of those things where he came and he was like, hey, guys, you know, you want to come like, you know, let's have this partnership with the Con- Congo. And America's like, eh, I don't know about that. You seem, you know, I'm not really feeling it. He's like, all right, uh, I'm going to go ask the Russians. That. And they're like, all right, well, now you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that big a mess. And this is one that a 10 Netflix or 10 episode Netflix series wouldn't even do this justice. Like that would even that oh. would just scratch the surface. Yeah. yeah. You can do a whole whole different multi-season series on not just Lumumba but the whole Congolese independence movement. You'd almost and, have yeah. to do a 10 episode Netflix series on like you'd have to do like a whole series on the guy and then a whole series on his relationship with America and a whole right, series on right. his relationship with the Soviet Union and right. oh man, yeah. And I think if someone was willing to do that that work, I think you could you it could make an interesting show out of it, but I don't oh, want yeah. I don't want to write it. <laughs> yeah. And then our final movie of the third quarter of the project was The Right Stuff, which brings us to the Space Age, which is crazy to think that back, you know, Battleship Potemkin, we still hadn't taken flight. When was the Wright Brothers flight off the top of your head? 1907-ish? Uh, I want to say 1911, 19, no, it was 190. I'm going with 7. 07? 06 or 07? I'll say 06. Just to fresh as right me. 1903, we were both. Oh, dang. Okay, so, sorry. So going back to Battleship Potemkin, which took place just a couple years after the Wright Brother flight, to the right stuff, where we're not yet to the moon landing, but we are into man and space. Both the Soviets and the Americans have reached outer space. And we get uh, another one of your nominees for most interesting person ever, John Glenn. Just when you look at his resume from fighter pilot to astronaut to senator who actually went into yep. space who's actually still still holds the title as oldest man ever in space right yep yep because he went to space i think he was on a space shuttle mission like when he was in his 70s yeah. i think he was he was a senator at the time too right right so yeah, yeah just uh just fascinating but yeah so yeah it talks about fighter pilots and this it focuses specifically on the mercury astronauts who were the yep. first American astronauts, and actually, they basically NASA became NASA while these guys were in training. It was kind of an existing program, but got named NASA, I think, during the development of the Mercury program. So, very, very fascinating. I do, I think I mentioned the book several times in the episode, but I do highly recommend reading the book to you personally, Logan, and to anybody else listening. Um, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but this was. A very very engaging not a nonfiction book. So even if you don't necessarily read a lot of nonfiction, I still recommend the right stuff. And it and it parallels with you know the the astronauts, and then it also um, parallels their 
story with the story of Chuck Yeager and the uh, test pilots at Edwards Air Force Base, um, you know, trying to go faster and faster. And, um, you know, the, at the very beginning, they're, they're breaking the sound barrier and they keep trying to go faster and push the envelope, both in aviation and in, in, the, uh, in the space race. And it's also uh, another movie like Lawrence of Arabia that is over three hours long. But when you're watching it, at least for me, uh, it's paced really well. And there's a lot going on, and it's so you get so engaged that you don't even realize that you've watched a three-hour movie by the time you're done. Yes, like, and it's one thing to say that this is one like I even you saying that I'm like, is it really over three hours? Like, I already forgot. Like, it goes by so fast, and I I just kind of go from one thing to the next. So it almost does. It almost feels like you're watching a ten-episode Netflix series on fast forward. So in that yeah. way, it makes it seem. Like it's not that long at all. It's three hours and thirteen minutes. Right. I'm like, that's that's crazy. And even though I just watched it, you know, what a month ago or so, I can't get my head around that. I'm like, no, surely it's under two and a half hours, right? Like, no, it's yeah, it's that's very engaging, funnier, way way funnier than I remembered. And so I think that's part of what keeps its runtime kind of plugging along to where it doesn't feel dry or boring at all. Like you would almost think a three hour movie about astronauts training would be and it, it's not it's very engaging it's very funny it's very exhilarating and you're you're rooting for these guys and all the personal dynamics and they're interesting characters and it's it's really really good movie that i think we didn't we talk about probably should have won best picture that year yeah and i don't remember what did I w- it's terms of endearment i think was it in 1983 yep but yeah the the, the so the, the interactions with the with the astronauts are funny but i the my i think the funniest part is the jeff goldblum harry shearer like oh hands down yeah yeah <laughs> you know their their interaction with each other and you know the, like uh you know when they're on the aircraft carrier and they're they're both seasick and they uh he keeps you know finishing his sentences because the other guy's like almost throwing up at the every time he you know tries to tell uh, alan shepherd anything when they're trying to recruit people when you, you'll talk about performances stealing a show i would say those two guys are the most subdued performances ever to steal yes. a show because usually it's someone yep. coming in big and chewing the scenery like a like a brad pitt and 12 monkeys or something where it's right. like stealing the show that way it's like these guys are like both completely deadpan and steal the show in a weird way yeah <laughs> um okay so we've talked about a few of them and i went i kind of went through and jotted down a couple of names so i got five names for you and you're gonna have them fight amongst each other to determine who is the most interesting person from the first half of the 20th century. We won't go all time. Okay. We're going to look. So we got T.E. Lawrence, Puyi, John Glenn, Gandhi, and Alan Turing. So weigh the kind of okay, pros and so- cons of the most interesting life lived. I don't know. You can come up with the criteria right now if you want to. Here's, here's what I'm thinking. I think that this needs to be a two-part answer. Okay. So the, the first the first part I will I will crown the person who I think is most interesting to me personally, and I think it's T. E. Lawrence because he I mean you know graduates college at like nineteen doing all this archaeological stuff he's basically Indiana Jones running around the desert you know learning about all these Crusader castles then because of that because he knows the area speaks Arabic he starts. Uh, as a spy before he's ever in the British military, he's spying on the Germans because um, they're building a railroad from Berlin to 
it was somewhere in the Middle East um, as, you know, a, a transportation way for oil and stuff. And then uh, so he's, you know, spying, uh, keeping track of like uh, train times and drawing maps and stuff. And he's um, helping uh, the British survey the desert. And then he becomes a full on member of the military. And then basically, and, you know, then gets embedded with the Arab army during the Arab uprising. And yeah, I mean, man. And then dies a, in a motorcycle accident when he's like 45 yeah. or something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know barely even you know lived a hundred lives before you know and then died in his 40s but i think that the person who is most interesting overall and who i think actually wins the crown of the most interesting person i think it's puyi okay yeah yeah god emperor to gardener with 20s playboy in between yes he became emperor at two years old and so already i mean he's up right. there right he lives his whole adolescence up into early adulthood as emperor. Then he finally decides to leave the Forbidden City and does his whole, you know, playboy thing where he's just partying it up, spending tons of money. He's got his two wives. The dude is, you know, living large in Southeast Asia. Then World War II happens, and then he gets captured by the communists and loses it all. Goes from being the emperor of a, of a whole country to, you know, this rich playboy and then political prisoner peeing in a pot. Recruited by the Japanese in between those two. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely left out that altogether. He was recruited by the Japanese. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, and, and that, I mean that I think he wins just because of the the up and down. No, right. It's, it's the rise and fall. And I, I, you're, I don't know what you would call that exactly. It's almost like, the, I guess, the opposite of a Horatio Alger story or whatever. And then and then the button, you would yeah. assume the button to all that would be, well, obviously, then the communists assassinate him. No, they rehabilitate him and send him back out into society. And then he's just a poor gardener for the rest of his life who sucks at yep. gardening because he actually yep. has no skills because he was a rich yes. emperor who never actually learned to do anything. Yeah. And and the cr the craziest thing is that like you know when you talk about people who have crazy rise and rises and falls like that a lot of times it's like they rose because they did all this cool stuff and then they fell because they messed something up or they did something shitty this guy like life just happened to him man I mean he didn't like choose to have the communists get him or choose to have World War Two happen I mean this he's just he's just surfing the wave of of history right I would say the only actionable choice he made where he kind of showed some kind of agency in his life was when he did choose to entertain Japan's offer. But at the same time, if he had refused them, they might just kill him, right? So so maybe he didn't even have a choice right. with that, even though the communists were trying to hold him accountable for right. it later. So yeah, that's a yeah. Let's uh, we'll, go, we'll make this an official podcast award now. So Puyi, congratulations. You are the winner of the most <laughs> interesting human from the first half of the 20th century. And maybe we can try to keep an idea, keep that in mind as we go forward here. And now immediately just looking at this, we didn't have any women nominated, and I do feel bad about that. So that's something we can maybe keep an eye out toward here. That's kind of just from the movies we covered. I'm guessing if we did a little more research, we could start looking into some women who could definitely be on this list, you know, from Amelia, Amelia Earhart oh, sure, to... Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I think it was a Babe Deidreson was a famous athlete, and you know, well, we, you know, Avita definitely had an interesting life going from. I probably should have nominated her at least. Uh, she was still lose to Puyi and T. E. Lawrence, but Avita going from uh, basically a social climber yeah. to the actual uh, first lady of Argentina, definitely an interesting life. I think we were just kind of tainted by the bad movie there. 
Yes. So, yeah, that's kind of the rundown of the third season of History and Film. We will get started back up with season four, the final season of at least the world history portion of this project. You know, we'll we'll see where we end up after that, but we'll start back up uh, on Election Day. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Logan. Logan.